Okay, grab your Bibles, everyone. Matthew 26. We're nearly there. This is a, a riveting topic today. About 15 years ago when we were in Los Angeles, um, the, we were at the Dream Center and they asked us to do an outreach and, and immediately all of our youth kids looked at me and said, do we do this kind of thing? And I was like, nope, but it's going to be a learning experience and this is what it was. I've told you guys about this before, probably the most awkward situation of my life. They, they had us grab a gigantic cross, which we had to bring there on the top of our bus to Rodeo Drive with all the people that are um, at the clubs and all these ladies with high heels and dudes wearing cologne. And, I mean, church, you know, it's kind of funny. Guys over 40 wear cologne, but nobody under, unless you're like the club guys. You know what I'm saying? I mean, imagine Sean wearing cologne. That would be really weird. You'd be like, what is up with you, Sean? Cologne? Anyways, these guys are all wearing cologne. And, uh, and we had to take this cross, and we had to take turns carrying it down the road in front of all these clubbers and people reacted very badly to us and we're all like walking behind this cross <laughs> like oh, what's going on with this thing and people like yelling at us out the restaurant like they're like calling us i mean george bush i think was the president they're calling us bush lovers and we're like we don't even know what that means we're from canada and they're just like just like berating us. It was horrible. It was the worst. And people were like, we don't even know what this means. And then this one guy from the Dream Center, he took his shirt off. He's like, they're not getting it. I need to look more like Jesus. And he's like, got no shirt and he's carrying this cross. Horrible. And I couldn't really tell what was going on. Here's, here's essentially the question that we're asking people is, um, they were saying, like, Jesus died for you. He died for your sins. And they're like, we don't care. We don't get it. You know, when people say something like, Jesus died for your sins, you're thinking, what does that mean? Okay, he died on a cross. Whatever. What does that mean? It's, it's such a cultural thing that we don't understand. We, we have people come to church and we say, Come up here and drink this juice, which represents the blood of Jesus. Eat this bread, which is his flesh. And they're like, we don't track. And even for a lot of us who've been in the church for a very long time, we don't understand why Jesus died on a cross. And, and how at the end of the day, we even explain this to people. You know, Jesus died for you, man. I don't, I don't get it. Communion and crucifixion are very Jewish concepts. And these concepts were incredibly profound for them because there was so much cultural understanding and meaning that, that when they saw this, it just made sense, and they're just like, that's unbelievable. For us, it's very different. And so you're going to notice a shift in the New Testament that the apostles taught a lot differently to the Gentile non-Jew audiences, and they taught things like adoption. They never talked about atonement. They didn't talk about, about, about the cross in the same way that they did to Jewish audiences. And so we're going to get into this. We're going to talk about um, a passage of Scripture that hopefully we're going to leave here with a greater understanding and also a changed heart toward communion and even toward the crucifixion. So it's going to take some prayer. It's going to take the Holy Spirit coming and just informing us. 
So let's just, all of us in this place, pause. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you've invited the Holy Spirit into your life, then he dwells in you and he will give you spiritual insight. If you're not a Christian and have not received the Holy Spirit, you can still ask for God to come and enlighten your eyes and to give you understanding, and he will do that. But we need to ask. The human brain cannot contemplate these spiritual truths. So let's pause for 30 seconds and ask the Spirit to just guide us and and to just speak truth to us, enlighten our eyes. So let's all do that individually. Jesus, I pray that you'd send your spirit and give us revelation. Fill us with your spirit and understanding. We cannot understand without you. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, to understand what happened on the cross, as Jesus is hanging there naked in front of the entire community at the time, we have to understand something called the Passover. And the Passover is one of the most shocking events in history. That Passover happened. I think sometimes we look at these Bible stories and we're like, okay, that, that's a great story. This happened, and it was horrible. The Jewish people were being enslaved by Egypt, and Pharaoh was seeing the Jewish numbers grow. And there were so many Jews that he started to fear that if they decided to rebel, that they could take over Egypt. So he wanted to slow their population. This is what he did. He decided that the only way to slow the population was to make them have less sex. You're thinking, is that, this is true. He did it two ways. Number one, he he taxed them heavily so that the men had to work more. And that wasn't working, and they they were still reproducing at a high level. So he did something different. He decided that he would make the men do crazy manual labor so when they came home after work, they'd be so tired, they wouldn't have sex with their wives. I'm not joking you. It didn't work. These men just came home ripped than ever, and their numbers went through the roof. (laughs) And so Pharaoh, getting so frustrated came up with his final plan. And this is what it was, is that he would take all the babies born male and throw them into the river. This was the plan. This happened. And it was such a disgraceful thing. And so much of the art from that period reflects just this pain. I found this interesting piece. Um, Look at the woman at, at just the feet of the man who's throwing the baby into the Nile. This was just the refrain of the Jewish people, that, that what would happen is if, if, if a woman got pregnant, they would start to watch her. As, as her belly would grow, they would actually send people to watch her and wait for the moment that she would give birth. Often women in childbirth would, would try to make no noise so that they wouldn't be alerted that there's a baby coming. Because as soon as the baby came out, they would be there. They would do a quick inspection. If it was a girl, they'd leave. If it was a boy, they're taking it. Imagine, this happened. This is absolutely crazy. The pain of God's people was 
incredible. Like childbirth. I remember the moment that Owen was born. You just have this little baby and you just stare at this baby. We brought him home and put him in leaves and took pictures of leaves around him and thought, there's no baby like this baby. Let's lay him in leaves and take pictures of him. (laughs) So dumb. People were like, was he warm in that picture? He looks cold. Are you fit parents? And we're like, shut up, we're fit. (laughs) You just love your children. And just imagine at that moment that, that your boy is taken from you and thrown in the river. This is what was happening. And, and this was the craziest history of, of the Jewish people. There was a mother who managed to hide her baby for three months. She gave birth, hid it, but it was becoming impossible to hide this child any longer. And she decided that she would make a basket out of papyrus, and she coated it with pitch, and she put it into the Nile River, just praying that God would somehow save her baby. And Pharaoh's daughter found it, fell in love with the baby, brought it into the palace, and said, now we need someone to breastfeed it. Let's find someone. And it happened to be the baby's mother who ended up breastfeeding the baby. I hope this story is a little bit familiar to you. This is Moses. And God's people cry out, and God chooses Moses to speak for him, and Pharaoh doesn't listen. So to get God's people away from this man who's killing all their children, he sends plagues one at a time. And, and I was thinking about these plagues. Sometimes we hear them, and we don't, we don't actually picture them, and so we don't remember them. So much of the Bible often we read without context, and so it doesn't stick. You know how you read Lord of the Rings, and you can picture it? You can taste it, touch it almost. And so um, there's this movie that was made about the plagues. And so there's some cheesy music to this, but I want us to watch it. And these 10 plagues were incredible. They had such an effect. And, and just one at a time, this is history and this happened. And it's important to kind of understand these plagues to understand what happened next. So God's people, they're sick of their babies being killed. God sends these plagues. This is them. Go ahead and roll that, Matthew.
Whoa. <laughs> these, uh, these plagues were intense. The, the darkness lasted for three days. They all had different prophetic meanings. But, but when Pharaoh's own son was killed in the last plague of the death of the firstborn, he had absolutely had enough. And, and he not only told the, the Israelites that they could leave, he actually forced them to leave. They, they had to leave immediately. There was, they said it was incredible mourning in the land, that there was just the sound of weeping everywhere you went. And I want you to imagine, God told them, he, he had this provision. He said, I want you to take the blood of a lamb and put it over your door, and, and that will save your family. And so they woke up in the morning, and their children were still alive, but their neighbors, just imagine the scene. This is called the Passover. And it was such a profound moment that in that day, 1.5 million Jews left. It's a lot. And, and as they left, they got to the Red Sea. And we know what happens next is Moses, who was saved from Pharaoh, put his staff in and, and the sea parts and the people passed through to the promised land. Well, nearly the promised land. This is an amazing deliverance. And God says, do not ever forget how I saved you because we have a really short memory. He said, don't ever forget. I want you to celebrate Passover every year. This is what you need to do every single year. Never forget it. And this feast is to be huge. Did you know that they had to tithe 10% toward a feast, a a party? So all of Israel, 10% of their income went to a party. Did you realize that? This party was insane. All of a sudden, they'd be like, okay, it's Passover. The kids would be like, it's Passover. They would all head to Jerusalem, fired up. They would all take a spotless lamb with them because it's Passover. And so they're ready for this. And they would make a pilgrimage to the temple. And this is what happened. We've talked about this here before when we went through the Acts series, but it was, in, in, it was insane. There would be 1.5 to 2 million people enter the temple. They would bring a lamb with them. They say that there was about 256,000 lambs brought into the temple. It's a lot. And they would bring it in, and and the family would, would lay their hands on the lamb, and they would confess the sins of the family onto the lamb. And then a priest would come along, and it cut its neck, and put the blood in, into bowls, and there would be priests just lined up all the way up to this altar, just, and they would just pass the bowls, one to the next, one to the next. They'd finally get to the top, and they'd pour the blood into this altar, and, and it would pour out into the streets of Jerusalem. 256,000 lambs worth. They said that, that the river of blood ran for weeks out of the temple. They said that the stench was astounding. Just the smell was horrible, the sound of lambs dying, and it was this incredible picture revealing how gross our sin is, and they called this Passover. And afterwards, they would have the biggest party of the year. They would take the meat from the lamb, and they would have a Passover meal, and, and they would all gather, and there'd be so much anticipation And this is where we find Matthew 26. Why don't you guys grab your Bibles? Matthew 26. We're going to go to verse 7. If you don't have one, they're right in the rack in front of you there too. Matthew 26, verse 7. 
on the first day of the festival of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to go to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. You have to understand, Passover had to be in Jerusalem. Do you think there's enough lodging for two million people in Jerusalem at the time? No chance. There was a law that if somebody knocked on your door, you had to let them come and have their meal in your house. <laughs> Could you imagine? You're just hoping that you, nobody knocks on your door or you just ignore it. Oh, I, don't, I didn't hear nothing, honey. I didn't hear anything. But if someone knocked on your door, they're like, hello, we're here for dinner. Here's our lamp. Well, it's dead now. Here's our <laughs> Gross. Anyways, and they would come in and they would use that house. It was the law. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. I tell you, I will not drink from the fruit of this vine now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. When they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So we hear this, and we're like, okay, First Communion. There's some great meaning there. But for the Jewish people to hear what Jesus just did is shocking. For 1,500 years, there was a pattern to the Passover meal. It was specific, and they did it every time. They knew it from memory perfectly, and Jesus completely rewrote it. This is what they usually would do. They would start with wine. They would have a, a glass of wine, delicious wine. Remember, 10% of their income went into this party, so the wine was amazing. They would have a glass of wine, and someone would, would drink from it, and then they'd pass it to the next person, to the next, to the next. And the first glass of wine represented a promise from God that I will rescue you. You got those, Matthew, those different meanings? The second glass of wine that they would pass around means I will free you. This is talking about the Passover when God came and rescued his people. The third glass that they would share together was I will redeem you. And the fourth was I will give you a future. So they're sitting there drinking their wine and the dad would be like, oh, you guys, this fourth one, this is another promise from God. And everyone is fired up. They're drinking wine. They're remembering everything that God has done. This is a party. This was a celebration. Next, they would get some unleavened bread, which was known as the bread of affliction. And they would all eat the bread, remembering what they had suffered in Egypt when their babies were killed, but that they no longer have to deal with. It's in the past. They're like, it's behind us. And then they would do something totally different. They would take some lettuce and they would dip it in salt water and they would eat it. The salt water represented tears of the parents. And they would be like, oh, God delivered us from that. They would eat it. And then they ate bitter herbs by dipping bread in it to remind them of the bitterness of the time living in Egypt. And then they, they'd eat a paste which reminded them of the mortar and bricks, the hard work that Pharaoh made them do to keep them from, you know, being together. 
Then they ate the roasted lamb that they had sacrificed to pay for their sins. And for 1,500 years, they did it exactly this way. Today, which it's called a Seder meal, there's some new additions. The temple got destroyed, and so now they've added an egg to remember just the pain of the temple being destroyed. But up to this point, this is exactly how it looked. But Jesus came and drank everything. He started with one glass of wine, and that's it. He said, this glass of wine, he said, it's no longer those promises of God. It is my blood now. It's all fulfilled in me. He is saying, guess what? I will rescue you. I will free you. I will redeem you, and I will give you a future. It's all me now. And the disciples are just like, what's going on? He's changing Passover. You're changing Passover. And then he took the unleavened bread. Remember the bread of affliction? And he said, it's me. I will be your affliction so you don't have to suffer affliction anymore. Unbelievable. No more affliction for you. He skips the lettuce into the tears because there's no more tears. He skips the bitter herbs because there's no more bitterness in the kingdom of God. He completely skips the mortar, the gross paste, because there's no more striving, and there's no lamb. There's no lamb. It's midnight, and Jesus walks out of the upper room, past the temple, into the garden. He's arrested. He's put on trial. And then he's slaughtered and put up on the cross. And here's what Paul says. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. He is the Passover lamb. This, this is so meaningful to them. He completely rewrote Passover meal. He completely changed everything. This meal is the biggest celebration. It used to symbolize deliverance from Egypt, but now it symbolizes deliverance from death and pain and sorrow and it completely changes absolutely everything but you're going to notice something it says that after they did this meal before jesus left they sang a hymn do you guys remember it said that they sang a hymn so he went back after he changed the whole meal but he kept the hymn in there and it's psalm 118 why don't you guys all grab your bibles and turn it to psalm 118 so if you grab your bible open it right to the middle you'll be in the book of psalms Psalm 118, this is what they sang at the end of their Passover meal. This was a celebration of celebrations. (laughs) It would have been powerful. There probably would have been one guy that could sing really well, and he would have led it, and everyone else would have repeated parts of it. Anyways, um, you guys all there? Okay, this is the song. Dylan is going to sing it as loud as he can up there in the balcony. Dylan, you ready? Okay. Hopefully we can get this. Will this work on video, Donovan? Let's hope. I mean, American Idol might be looking for you afterwards, Dylan. Okay, here we go. Psalm 118, go!
<laughs> okay, there you go. That's pretty good, Dylan. It goes on and on and on. That's pretty good, Dylan. That's pretty good. <laughs> you know what? They, they got together and they just celebrated. They celebrated the greatest deliverance in the history of the world. And now we're invited to celebrate even more. Back then, they, they celebrated Passover once a year. And Jesus said, I want you every time you get together to celebrate like this. Every single time you gather, he says, I want you to observe this. This is like church is meant to be a party. We're meant to gather here and remember the promises of God. His love endures forever. We're delivered We're no longer captives. We are freed. Every time we get together, we celebrate the promises of God. You know what? We do this. This is what we get to do. We focus on what he has done. I read this fascinating study. It was done by sociologists at Harvard, and this is what they found. They found that when we look into a mirror, so let's imagine you go home tonight. You know, you're getting ready for bed. You look in the mirror. The sociologists found that our eyes scan our perceived flaws. That's where we look. Okay, fat there. Teeth. Ooh, what's going on there? Hair. I don't know what's going on there. Ooh, look at that. Rash. And our eyes just scan. That's what they do. I remember as a little kid, I mean, I had this crazy crown, and I'd wake up in the morning, I'd look in the mirror, and I'd see that crown. You know, and I don't have that anymore. I don't even think I have any flaws, I don't think. That's gone. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. But we do that. Every single one of us looks and we view our flaws first. When we look at our bodies or even when we look at pictures, if we were to take a group photo and they were to have a photo of, of six people, every one of us looks at ourself, doesn't notice anyone else, and thinks, do I look good enough in that picture? Oh, what am I doing there? Like every single picture that Melissa posts, I look absolutely horrible. It's like, ah, like, or something like this, and so does everyone else. Because we don't look at anyone else when we look at pictures, and we also don't look at parts of us that are pleasing when we look in the mirror. We have this bias against things that are good in our lives. We do this in every area of our life. We wake up in the morning, we don't think, I'm so excited for this, 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 and this today. We're like, oh no. The one or two things, and then we dwell on them in our hearts. And that day becomes defined by those things. We focus on the negative. You know, like when you have to go and get a needle at some point in the day, like a flu shot? You wake up, and it's like, I'm getting a needle at 2.30. It's a five-second thing, but it's all I'm going to think about the whole day. Instead of waking up and think, oh, I'm going to go have some coffee. I'm going to see my kids and give them a hug I love hugs. It's raining outside. You know the smell of rain on concrete? Oh, I get to go in, the ra- go in my car and listen to the radio. Then I get to go see my friends at school or at work or my spouse or my girlfriend or my boyfriend or whoever it is. There's so much beauty in every day, but we've trained ourselves to look at only the things that are the afflictions, the things that we're scared of, the things that cause us anxiety, And Jesus says, I I want you, every time you gather, to observe communion. The promises of God fulfilled. The deliverance fulfilled. The fact that I'm a new creation. I want you to focus on that. 
He says, every time you gather, a few weeks ago we talked about the fact that, 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 that this present, um, of all of us living in society right now are known as the anxious generation, that we, we have this problem of focusing upon things that we struggle with. And I get it, our, our world is vastly different than a generation ago. And like, I mean, for centuries, really, for every guy, it was pretty clear. You, you took your father's occupation. It's how it worked. So at the age of like 10, you knew what you were going to be. And you'd go to work with your dad and he'd be like, here's a hammer, here's a nail, you're a carpenter. And you would just become a carpenter. And you would just live in a room adjacent to your parents' house. And, and when it came time to be married, they would just arrange that for you. For girls, it was pretty clear. Here you go. You're going to be a mom. Here's your husband. And there's not much anxiety with this situation. But now, we have 10,000 options for everything. Occupation. Who we're going to marry. Who we're going to date. Sociologists say this is a recipe for anxiety. Because even if we say yes to one of them, and that seems pleasing, we've still said no to 900, 900, 9,999 what might have beens, and we look back and second guess, and it becomes this anxious recipe. Further, our media is blasting us with thousands of ads a day designed to make us discontent and question what we presently have. Is what you have right now good enough? So we live in a state of constant questioning and reevaluating, reevaluating and reevaluating and it creates discontentment. So it's really no surprise that our parties are all about forgetting and repressing and lots of times living in fantasy. And it's such a waste and th- this needs to change and we need to actually learn to celebrate again. We need to be a people focused on the goodness of God. Like the beauty of Passover was that they gathered And they just dwelt on the promises of God. And they just remembered what he had done in their lives. And they celebrated. And Jesus said, that Passover, where there was the death of all those lambs, and it was so religious, he said, that was just a shadow to just show how gross your sin is. I have a new, more beautiful way. I am the lamb. I am the one that will deliver you. Step into it. He says, I want you to celebrate. In Russia, on Easter Sunday, the Orthodox priests get together, and this is what they do. They tell jokes. <laughs> they tell funny stories. They, they talk about the victories they've had in the last year. They dream about what God's going to do in the future. They believe that life is for laughing and real partying and real joy. That's what they believe. So they just gather and they just start to tell jokes. And they just laugh their faces off. Listen to how Jesus says that when we gather like this, we should be doing it. We just read this, but I want you to listen just attentively. Matthew 26, verse 26. He says, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And pay attention. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink 
from it, all of you. In both cases, he gave thanks. It's this word Eucharistio. And it means thanksgiving. And write this word down. You got that there, Matthew? This is so meaningful. Lots of traditions call this the Eucharist when we gather. It's the Eucharist. It's when we come and and we, we take the bread and we take the juice or the wine and we give thanks. We actually consider everything that God has done in our life and we have this posture of thanksgiving. It's a powerful posture. In every single season that we're in, if we walk in this posture of thanksgiving, our anxiety actually is gone. It's taking our eyes off of the obstacle and onto the one who, who promises a future for us. Ignatius is one of my favorite of the early disciples. He, he's one of John's disciples. This is a, what Ignatius looked like. So if you Google search Ignatius, John's um, disciple, this is what you're going to find. You got that there, Matthew? Is that up? It's a really good picture. There you go. That's Ignatius. You're thinking, what is up with that self-portrait? <laughs> Ignatius was sentenced to death by lions. True story. He was killed by lions. That's how he died. This is terrifying. And he knew it. He was sentenced to death by lions. And he went to bed. And he wrote in his journal. And this is what he wrote in his journal that night. He wrote, I consider the lions to be dear friends delivering me to my Savior. <laughs> Eucharistio. His situation is dire and horrible. But instead of focusing upon the lions... He focused upon thanksgiving and the fact that he has a future and a hope. Here's what Paul says. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Okay, Paul's in prison, by the way. I I will say it again. Rejoice. He's like, rejoice in the Lord always. Never don't rejoice. Always. And then he repeats it again. One more time. Rejoice. Rejoice. Every situation. How do we do it? He explains this. If we can actually live this, this will change your life. If you can actually live this next passage. He explains it four verses later. Philippians 4.8. He says, finally, brothers, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. This needs to be our focus. We wake up every single morning We're all going to have those worries for the day, but we drown them out with things that are beautiful, praiseworthy, pure. Every single morning on our Portland trip with our grade nines and tens, we gathered and we did this. We were just like, okay, this is how you pray. By the way, this is how you pray. You wake up and everything that you are excited about in the day, think about it. If it's praiseworthy, think about it. If it's pure, think about it. And, and we just all just sat there and just were like, God, thank you. Thank you for this. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It changes your life. Not one of us can stop worrying. You can't do it. But every single one of us can replace worry with thanksgiving. And it changes everything. Mike Bickle does something really cool. They asked him, he started a 24-7 prayer room, and they said, how do you pray for so long? And this is what he said. He said, this is how I pray. He says, prayer should be 90% thanksgiving. 
90%, you could easily pray for an hour if you're just mostly just thinking of everything you're thankful for. And it actually changes the posture of your heart. You see, we come to God, and this is what we do, is we focus on all the things in our life that are hard. And so what happens to the posture of our heart is this Eucharistio, this Passover meal that we're supposed to celebrate, when we're supposed to give thanks, it's not that at all. It's just bitterness. We're going back to captivity. It's just, it's just that martyr, mortar, I mean. It's the bricks. It's the lettuce and the tears. It's just all the things that, that we're not supposed to focus on. And then we wonder why we're just so anxious all day long. I just love so much that Ignatius, in the midst of his most severe trial, just said, okay, God, what are you doing that's beautiful? And what is beautiful? What is pure? What is praiseworthy? I'm going to invite you into this lifestyle. Every single Sunday that we gather, we do this. Jesus says, come and take this. This is my body. Now give thanks. What? What's beautiful in your life? Give thanks. It just changes our posture. Every morning you wake up, just spend 90% of your prayer time and thinking about things that you're excited about that day. Oh, I'm like this and this and this. God, thank you that you've given me this friend. Thank you for this opportunity. And then at night, guess what we get to do? We get to thank him for all the things in that day. It's a game changer. It changes everything in our life. We're going to worship right now, and I'm going to invite you to just come up and, and take the Eucharist just with fresh eyes, just brand new eyes. Just give thanks. And, and then just celebrate with him. Start to live in a posture of just joy, hey? Do you guys want that? I'm so sick and tired of, of just living life just in drudgery.